Salisbury Plain in southern England. 2500 BC, at the same time as the pyramids in Egypt are under construction, workers here complete the outer circle of Stonehenge. They haul huge rocks, some weighing up to 45 tons, across rough terrain. work each granite-like stone into shape. Then pull them upright to form the great stone circle. Thousand years ago, the prairies were so hot that hardly anybody lived here. There are not many artifacts on the on the plains from six thousand years ago. So people figured they moved to the mountains where it was cooler. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Grab America Show. Uh, we're going to be chatting with Gordon Freeman. Is that right? A little bit later. That's right. Uh, about Alberta's Stonehenge. Uh, he's from Edmonton, I think, so he's pretty close to the igloo, a few hours away, a few hours north. Uh, but first, as always, Fruity Graham. How's it going, buddy? On, but Hello? You can thank Not Morgan for that. Thanks, Not Morgan. I haven't listened to the episode yet, so I don't even want to hear about it. All the G words you just got and you had to use Fruity? It's a tribute. He'll get it. Is right it? Away. I'll He'll get laugh. it. Yeah. I'll get it. He won't, he will. He'll get it too. So yeah, we have Gordon Freeman coming on and, and uh, what really surprised me about his book, besides the quality of it, was uh, how much he got into Stonehenge and then that uh, that site in Wales, the Fusilli Mountains, I think it was called. So he really, yeah, he really, he went deep into, into Stonehenge as well. Like Fascinating the, stuff. Like the pasta? I don't know. What's, why am I cutting out? What's going on? I don't know. Producer, help me out here, buddy. Talk louder, boy. <clears throat> then I blow the mic and you give me shit. I uh, can't win. You can't win. Till you till you're perfect. Till I've molded you into the perfect podcaster. Yeah, and right. With all that fucking trickster negative feedback. Trickster? Me? Yeah. It's thanks to not more negative for that one. It's too. Negative reinforcement. Oh yeah, that's just what I need. So what do you got for everybody after a hiatus? Oh, well, I've got, so you got some sheets over there. You got printouts, whole workstation. Yeah. Look at all the work you do. You I do. Know. I do a lot. Look at this. So I've got some leftover business from last week, actually. Leftover business yeah. for more viewing? The people that guess the Eiffel Tower? Oh, but this one's kind of not, uh, not relevant to people yet. Shit. It is kind of funny, though. You know, we had that chat with Matt Swain. We recorded with the other day. That's not relevant yet, though. No. That's next Should week. Should I wait then? I'd save it for next week, probably. For During when our we Nats, that? Swain okay, chat. okay, I'll leave that one. Damn. So last week we did do our remote viewing exercise. Did you catch that email that I forwarded you that I missed? Yeah. Fuck, eh? Two people picked Eiffel Tower. I know. Can you believe it? So I want to apologize to Mark J. He sent me a nice email, actually, thanking me for being so respectful and not negative about his orb sightings. 
But uh, I wasn't negative, was I? No. Okay. I never said you were. Okay. I'm self-conscious <laughs> over there. So he says, I did a remote viewing census at work today, and most everyone did it, but the younger workers were all freaked out, so they chose not to do it. I have the following answers. One chose Stonehenge, one vote for Mount Fuji, one vote for Taj Mahal, two votes for the Eiffel Tower in Paris, and one vote for the north coast of Japan. So, Ooh, and I saw it by Japan too. That's three people up in the Japan area. Oh, wow. Watch the Japan area, motherfuckers. Shit is going to go on. down. <laughs> so, anyways, uh, two people voted the Eiffel Tower, and I missed that. On, and the, the result was the Eiffel Tower. So, yeah. I don't trust you. You can see the original date on the email and all that. I missed it all. I didn't think it was about, I thought it was an orange orb email. I didn't realize uh -huh. it was about the. Really dropped the ball. Yeah, June 9th. What's his name again? Mark. Mark? Yeah. Maybe Mark won't be such a ground fan now. <laughs> <laughs> he really blew his fucking remote view in thunder. Anyways, you can congratulate those two people for getting the answer right on the money. Another yeah, listener got, got it pretty close, too, actually. He talked about tall spires and, and the arch. The golden arches? No. So, Trickster over there tries to surprise me with the UFO quote of the week. And I'm ready to go, though. So, here we had a number of objects seen coming across in the North Sea on coastal radar. It looked like a Russian mistake. Jet aircraft were scrambled. The objects were traveling at quite impossible speeds, like 4,000 to 5,000 miles per hour, and then came to an abrupt halt near to one of those stations not very up high. Jet aircraft picked them up on aircraft radar. The objects then simply made rings around them. Inevitably, this led to the sort of inquiry which you would put in hand if you had any military responsibilities. Had someone... Had something gone wrong with ground radar or with aircraft radar? Were experienced pilots going out of their minds? Were people having fantasies? We had to investigate cases of that kind. Over the years, although there were not an enormous number of such cases, there were a sufficient number to persuade me and a number of air staff friends with whom I had to work with that something was going on, sporadically in British airspace, which we could not explain. But we did not particularly want to make public stations, stations, statements about that, not for something that we had no explanation. That's from Ralph Noyes, senior official with the British Air Ministry, retired as Undersecretary of State in 1977. That was a good long one. Yeah. I like it better when you do the long one, it makes it worth it. That's what she said. Good one. Touche. I had a lot of synchronicities come in last week. Ooh. I'm a rambling grand with synchronicities all over the web. And Aaron is skeptical about everyone and don't believe it yet. 
So this will be the last batch of judgments from Igloo 2.0. Oh, judgments, yeah, yeah. So this is from Rene DeFazio, one of our past guests. Ooh. Yes, and one of our favorite authors. Hey Absolutely. guys, hope life is treating you well. I listened to Grammarica last night and had a synchronicity happen as I define it. The uncanny, unexpected, and often numinous collision of the inner and outer worlds at a precise moment in time. They are sporadic, infrequent, and usually serve to jolt a person out of their ordinary mental consciousness to briefly experience the interconnected reality. What a great definition. Yeah. <laughs> I was listening to the new show, number 119, last night on consciousness, which I, I thought was ironic. Strange only listening to one Grammarica show a night now that I've caught up. You guys are better than all the other podcasters. Thanks, buddy. At 2.22 a.m., the phone at work rings, and it's my wife, Tamara, who woke out of the blue, saw that it was 2.22 a.m., and called, which she rarely does. We have begun to watch and listen for synchronicities as we think and feel it is the way in which the universe speaks, and one of those methods is through numerology. 222 as defined as our thoughts aligning with the truth. For example, if you have thought about quitting your job and are daydreaming about what you would really prefer to do instead, you will receive 222 as confirmation of the ideas you have aligned with your soul's purpose in this lifetime. So, when the phone rang, I pushed pause on my iPod, and afterwards, when we hung up, I put my earbuds back and press play, and at that very second, you guys started reading my email. Not one word from the previous story was included. Needless to say, I called Tamara back because we've been struggling with the decision to quit my job of 35 years and start a grass painting company, which would allow us more time to write. After that experience, decision made. How does that one rate, Darren? Wait a minute, don't answer that. <laughs> he says... P.S. The psilocybin show had me smiling from ear to ear. That sure brought back some good memories. Hope you had a great time, Graham, at the George Norrie show. If I could have, I would have been there with you with my Grammarica shirt on. Anyways, thanks, guys, and talk to you soon. Renee. One great love, one great adventure, one great year. That's the tagline from their book, One Great Year. And it's an awesome book. I got to say, it's like in my top five of all time books. So no rating. And your wife says it's her absolute favorite. True that. I still haven't read it. I'm going to read it, though. Maybe on my holiday. Waiting for the movie. I wouldn't wait for the movie. Just read the book. So I'm not rate, wait, rating? No rating? I think they should do a they should do an audio book with, like, Stefan Rudnicki, my favorite, uh, my favorite narrator, and Scott Brick. Well, me and you will narrate it. No. No. <laughs> we couldn't do it justice. No. Okay, I won't rate it. it no, you can rate that. Rating. It's good. I like that. Yeah. I don't like the idea that he's going to quit his job based out of his Grammarica synchro, but he's going to get the point four two. Um, hmm. I think it's a good one. When you, t when you click it on and it's been off for a while and it's just right at the right moment like that. Yeah, maybe that's the easiest to manipulate. Okay, I'll give it an... Wow, it sounds like you're going to say nine there. Eight. Point. Seven, two. 
Hmm. So that's an 8.3 with a 0.42. Hmm. I got a question for you. No, you know, I think that's too high. Because I didn't bitch? It's an 8.42. What's grass painting? No, I think that's like painting grass. Painting with grass or painting grass? Unless he means growing grass. Grass painting. Oh, maybe that's a maybe that's a sign. Like a what do you call it? I think it's like you paint grass for festivals and shit. Oh, is that what it is? You think? Yeah. Hmm. We need our, we need the outside of our studio repainted. Our new studio. I think it looks all right. Yeah, all scratched up. Fuck yeah. Almost damaged beyond recognition. <laughs> that's good to go. It's good to go. We'll be ready for winter. <laughs> so I got another one. It's quite long, but I'd like to read it if we have time. Sure. Got all the time in the world, buddy. Do you want to do another jingle or? Uh, okay. I don't have the other one handy. All right. So this is from Brennan. And he says, maybe a synchro. Maybe. Maybe. Ooh, tough start. Okay. You got to pay attention on this. this is a big one. I'm always paying attention. I'm a relatively new listener. I tuned in around episode 104 after hearing about you on the Grayling Report, and I've been a regular ever since. I like the way you put guests at ease, especially Richard Barrett and the recent roundtable, and the razzing back and forth that can be laugh-out-loud funny. Hell, your interview with John Harlosky inter interested me enough that I'm using up some of my vacation time to catch the 2015 IRVA conference in New Orleans at the end of the month. And I think IRVA, that's I-R-V-A, I think that's uh, probably International Remote Viewing Association or something like that. Nice. Get some interviews. Yeah. Send us a blog. Oh, actually, I think he mentioned that. But yeah, blog about it or give us an update and we'll uh, we'll do what we can to talk about it. So he says, I don't know if this qualifies as a synchronicity, but here it goes. Here it goes. And I'll just tell you right up front. It does. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sucking judgment. <laughs> back in 2010, I had a strange experience while driving back to the coast from Butte, Montana. On a quiet mountain road in central Washington state, I suddenly, and for no apparent reason, started crying because I was convinced my mother had died. I pulled over and the tears kept coming for a good 10 minutes. I took my GPS loudly... I took my GPS loudly resetting itself again for no apparent reason to snap me out of it. And I spent another 10 minutes trying to figure out what the hell had happened. Ordinarily, I'm not much of a crier. Anyways, I got myself together, kept driving and put the whole thing behind me. Of course, my mother was fine. Nowadays, I live in Victoria, but I grew up in Revelstoke. And in 2012, got the idea to collect all of Revelstoke's paranormal history into a book. Surprisingly enough, or maybe not, depending on your opinion of the place, a lot of weird shit has happened there in the past 80 years, and because it's a pretty close-knit place, most of it doesn't get talked about when outside of town. Or talked about outside of town. Anyways, my plan was to drive, start researching in Revelstoke after visiting friends in Oregon, and because it's about halfway between the two places, I ended up overnighting in the Washington town of Omak. Since I started taking an interest in the paranormal, I decided to check out haunted places along the way. And sure enough, there was apparently one, a campground, just outside of Omak on the Colville Indian Reservation. I got to Omak too late to go poking around in the woods, so instead I hit the laundromat and met a dude who knew the campground. He said the tribe had closed it to overnight campers, but he wasn't sure why. After I grabbed a room at the roadway inn in the middle of town and crashed. 
At about two in the morning, I was jarred awake by what sounded like an air raid siren. It was the loudest goddamn thing I'd ever heard. Not only that, but it wouldn't stop. It went on for about 10 minutes. I thought the friggin' world was coming to an end. When I finally got a hold of the front desk, they said it was the fire department's alarm, but they had no idea why it was going on for so long. Eventually, it stopped, and I got back to sleep. The next morning, I was so curious as to what happened that I went down to the police station, fire department, to ask, and it's a small enough town that the receptionist told me, two campers parked next to the river had burned down. The receptionist had no idea why the siren went on for so long, though. In fact, she said that while her and her friends were growing up during the Cold War, they were taught that a prolonged fire siren was the emergency signal to let everybody know the Grand Coulee Dam had broken. That night in 2012, her and her husband were both a little concerned they should be putting on pants and heading for higher ground. We were getting along so well I asked her about the campground and she said the same thing. The tribe on the Colville Res had closed to overnight campers, but she didn't know why. Without me asking, she wrote the tribe's phone number on the back of an OMAC PD business card. Eventually, I got to Revelstoke and started looking around. Right away, I learned that something we had been taught in school, that there were never any natives living in the Revelstoke area because of the unpredictable winters, was wrong. At the end, that the Sinext people had been living up and down the Arrow Valley. Sometime in the 1800s, they were all rounded up and shuttled off to a reservation. That reservation was the Colville Indian Reservation. A year later, I was looking at some maps while plotting out another road trip, and I decided to look for the spot where, in 2010, I had my little freakout. Wouldn't you know it, that quiet mountain road was smack in the middle of the Colville Indian Reservation. That OMAC PD get business card is still in my wallet. I never did call the band, but maybe I should see where it goes. Anyways, thanks for reading and keep up the great work. My plan at the IRVA conference is to keep a, a running blog while I'm down there, so if you're interested, feel free to keep an eye on my site. Info is at the bottom of the email. Thanks again. That's from Brennan. Largely the truth. The book is coming out next year, but I've had I've left out those details because I didn't want my first email to show like a sleazy self-promotion. <laughs> so anyways, thanks, Brennan, for the email and the synchronicity. What's the website? Largely the truth. Dot com. You bet. I'll link to that in the show notes. Give it a five and a half. That's it? Yeah. Why? Because of an asshole. No, why, really? I don't know. It's just, yeah. Yeah. Maybe he's a crier. He's not a crier, he said. You're a crier. I never said I wasn't. <laughs> But there was a time when he said your word. People haven't heard that episode come out yet, actually. <laughs> I was just going to read. That's what I was going to read to you earlier. We've come back to it a few times, though, I think. So anyways, um, you don't, don't you think that's a coincidence that the Colville Reservation, the Revelstoke, and the traveling around the road trip and... Uh, not, not, not feeling not, it. No, you're not feeling it? Hmm. Don't have any, like... Any link to it being a, you know. A what? <laughs> a native? <laughs> no. No? Not at all? Nothing. Nothing, eh? What do you got there? Do a little postcard. Well, this is kind of uh, just going back. At, well, anyways, I'll, I'll just finish off that segment there. 
Thanks, Brennan. You have another one? Well, no, I've got this. Uh, uh, it's going back. It's just a note about, uh, you know, that public space initiative uh, episode we did recently? Last week. No, the week before. Yeah. This guy, this is a, uh, Jesus, is this a tweet? What? Is, no, that's not a tweet. Is this an email or? YouTube. Or is that YouTube? YouTube. Is that what that's from? I forget to check YouTube. Probably a good thing. A lot of trolls there. So this is from Natalois. He says, I remember hearing Jay Wiedner talk about being in front of some investors. Thin skin. Oh my God. Thin skin, girl. I can't write it on the table because the table won't be here. He says, I remember hearing Jay Wiedner talking about being in front of some investors. Jay was pitching the idea of sending a satellite to the moon and photographing it in HD, then playing the film in the cinemas and making money. The... They employed an ex-NASA guy to check the technical details to make sure it was possible slash feasible. The ex-NASA guy rings up NASA and tells him of the plan. NASA tells him that they will shoot the rocket down and never call them again. And to never call them again. Until we remove the seat of power away from the military, this plan, it is a great plan, but it has no chance. There has been a base on the moon since 1959 using the anti-gravity tech. Remember... That film, Forbidden Planet, from 1956, that is the year all the anti-gravity research goes black out of the mainstream. We need to remove the idiots in government, then we gain control of the financial system, stop the deliberate lack, then abundance. Well said. I like that. Makes I sense to me. clap jingle. Yeah. Uh. It's not, not the same. It's not doing it? No. Sounds like you're jerking off. <laughs> fapping over the email? You're fapping. Hmm. Oh, we, uh, I should mention something. I want to give a shout out to uh, one of our uh, Twitter buddies who's driving. This, this should be you doing this. You want to do that? Oh, you go ahead. It's uh, Iva. I have a Twitter account. I have a Twitter account. He's a Gulf War uh, vet, 82nd Airborne, and he's doing a solo 10,000-mile motorcycle ride across the U.S. Oh, in support of Ava. Help me get the word out, guys. So, yeah, we're getting the word out. I'll link to it in the show notes. And um, do you know anything about this? No. I just seen it and retweeted it because it was a motorcycle. Oh, I see. Anyways, this guy's this is a veteran trying to ride around uh, 10,000 10, miles around the state. So, wish yeah. him all the best. People can uh, fund him, help him out, and fund yeah. him. Yeah, yeah. Is the link here? You gonna link to it? I'll link to it. Nice work. Yeah, he's a pro. Um. So yeah, the last show in the Igloo Two Point This one was a little better. Hopefully, the next one will be even better. Hopefully we're not shivering in winter. Yeah. Really is a running experiment. Yeah. We could always use gas money. Have you run out of gas lately? Not this week. <laughs> I haven't gone back out in the bike since. I'm still gun shy. We have, really? We have gear acquisition syndrome here and, and we need to pay for our monthly expenses and pay for our new studio. Yeah. 
we really didn't think this was going to happen. When we started up the podcast, it was like, oh, yeah, we'll just talk via Skype with each other. And I had my little tiny headset over my mouth. And, and then all of a sudden it got all professional. Here we are. And the fruits of our labor. So, yeah, help us uh, pay off our... Our bills. Our bills, yeah. Graham's credit has gotten us through so far. Yep. Uh, Grahamerica.ca slash support. There's all sorts of different options there. Um yeah so review the show too that helps big time yeah absolutely so we haven't we have we did we got i've been putting the stitcher review link in the show notes as well as the itunes one perfect even though i think stitcher like downgrades the quality but yeah and they might even throw their own fucking ads in there or something like that if you're listening on stitcher just switch to the site yeah we'll have an app one day yeah. you should check but it you can still app. review it on stitcher just yeah. switch <laughs> you you should check out that uh, app situation. Me, if that's doable. Me, yeah. Yeah. what app is that? Our app. Oh, our our app. Well, yeah, I, I have. Oh, have you? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, support the show. Gramerica.ca slash support. Uh, I'm trying to drum up uh, subscriptions for the next little while here. See if we can get some more. Uh, the monthlies really help, of course. If we get to fifty, then Silasiba uh... sequel. Yeah. Um, sign up for the newsletter, grammarica.ca slash news. Speaking of psilocybus, I did have some more feedback on the psilocybus. If you, you just, people are if still you, listening to that, yeah, yeah. Well, Renee had you know, he listened to it, it brought back Rennie. memories for him. Sorry, Renee, <laughs> Rennie. And uh, this is from Not Morgan. Speaking of Not Morgan earlier, this is from Reflective Air podcast, which you actually like listening to, don't you? Yeah. So you're wrong. There just needs to be more of them. More of it's them. It's not enough. They're fascinated by how we get so much content out. Yeah. Well, even if they can only record once a month or whatever, then they maybe even just split it up into two episodes. Try and be at least bi-weekly. Yeah, I talked to him about that a little bit. It's challenging for them. Anyways, he says uh, he realizes that I get picked on by your trickster. I think they're on the subject there. If they yeah. were more more regular, then it'd be, it'd be big. All right, so another quickie. I listened to your Psilocybus episode a couple of weeks back, and that's our Enter the Mushroom episode. That goes back to uh, over a year ago, before we started numbering the episodes. He said... Before this studio, even. He said, really funny, and it took me straight back to my own mushroom experiences. Me and some friends also tried to record the experience of a mushroom session many, many years ago now, and you did much better than us. Our whole tape just seemed to consist of me saying i can see squares triangles circles etc not particularly illuminating anyway i felt like it showed darren in a new light to me he's funny as fuck and i really enjoyed hearing his trip i need to pee am i peeing <laughs> <laughs> it's given me some ideas for a trip report jingle so yes please do i can i'd love to have an am i peeing trip report jingle also my girlfriend <laughs> This is correct. I love that one too. That's good. Also, my girlfriend saw how much I enjoyed the episode and listened to it herself all in one go. It was the first episode of yours she heard, and now she's a regular listener to you too. I was surprised to find that she hadn't listened to you before. When I asked her why, she said it was because of the name Grimerica. She apparently thought you'd be grimy and American. Little did she know we're Canadian. Ah, oh, the little things that go on in ladies' minds. 
No comment. No comment. That's nice feedback, yeah. though. Hello there, not Morgan's girlfriend. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Spread the word. Spread the word. Grimy Americans are back in town. You look a little grimy sometimes. I'm a grimacologist. Are you? Is that like what you grew up wanting to be? <laughs> you got anything else That's before it, we uh, jump into our chat with Gordon? Nope, that's it. That's a good one. How old's Gordon again? Uh, he's in his 90s, I think. That's a few guys we've had in their 90s so far. Yeah. We're doing good for that. Paul Hellier is pretty old. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. That's three or four guys we've had in their 90s, I think. That's yeah. I hope, he, I hope I'm not, you know. Sorry, Gordon, if you're younger than that. I don't know why I thought he was like 92 or something. Like he's like 70. Yeah. You're just yeah. a dick. Wouldn't be the first time Graham got her wrong, but yeah. he's a pretty good. He might be in his mid eighties, actually. I'll just backtrack a back bit, pedal ba- a bit, backpedal a bit, and say expand. that. Yeah, yeah, guys, enjoy the chat with uh, Gordon. It was a fun one, um, and I suppose we will be coming back at you in the outro. guys in Grime America tonight we're going to be talking Alberta's own little Stonehenge not far from the igloo I actually might head there Friday if I can get there I was actually going to ask uh, Gordon about that um, but first how's it going buddy hey I'm doing good I'm doing good I'm looking forward to this because we get to talk about our you know our own province here and we've got uh, Dr. Gordon Freeman here who's author of Hidden Stonehenge Ancient Temple in North America reveals the key to ancient wonders um, I didn't really know much about Gordon. Uh, a listener had forwarded us th- his information and saying, you guys got to have this guy on. He's, he's amazing. And we've talked about ancient sites all over the world. So we, I, I bought Gordon's book. It's a fascinating book. It's, it's one of these real heavy ones with glossy pages, lots of pictures. And uh, we've been communicating ever since. So we finally got him on. Now, Gordon's discovered lunar and solar calendars at ancient sites right here in our backyard. Canada's Stonehenge predates the UK's and the Great Pyramids. And his great book is the result of like 30-year quest to understand these ancient sites. So Gordon Freeman, PhD, is now Professor Emeritus at University of Alberta. And for 40 years, he's been pioneering disciplinary studies in chemistry, physics, and human societies. Besides his academic credentials from three universities, he was chairman of physical and theoretical chemistry for 10 years and director of the Radiation Research Centre for 30 years at the University of Alberta. So there's lots to talk about here. Gordon's got a, a wide range of of uh, expertise, so we're really looking forward to having you here. Thanks for joining us, Gordon. Oh, you're very welcome. It's a pleasure. 
Yeah, it's great to talk to to local local folks and people that have done all this research right in our backyard. Can you can you start off by just giving us a a little synopsis of, of your book and and then we can start digging into some of the details. Well, the synopsis of the book is kind of tough. A synopsis of that sun temple that my wife and I discovered. Uh, we were told that it was a medicine wheel on the highest hill in the region, and uh, it turns out that uh, it's a sun effigy. And the term medicine wheel is a white man's term. doesn't really mean anything, huh. except, uh, except to archaeologists, I guess. <laughs> but uh, when we found this thing, we found all kinds of other patterns of stones on that that very hillside. And uh, when, uh, on any of the pictures that I took from 1980, uh, they don't really show a so-called medicine wheel. All they show these other patterns looking up to the cairn on the top of the hill. And so when I asked archaeologists what are all these other patterns, they said, ah, oh, those stones were just where the glacier dropped them 10,000 years ago. Huh. The only stones moved by man are in the medicine wheel. So anyway, uh, Mother Nature is a fascinating uh, entity, but uh, we thought that those uh, piles of rocks engineered uh, arrangements of rocks at right angles couldn't really come accidentally, so we started studying it in 1980, and I'm still making discoveries in 2015. Wow. So are we talking, <laughs> obviously we're talking pre-Ice Age? Uh, no, 5,200 years. The Ice Age is, uh, is uh, it was over here 10,000 years ago. The uh, ice sheet melting back up to the Arctic, uh, kept the rivers in high flood until 2008. But since what, uh, <laughs> since since about uh, 8,000 years ago, and uh, since 8,000 years ago, the the Bow River has been pretty much uh, where it is now, right. lower, just a part of the the valley. Right. So how far how far uh, out of Calgary are we, t- are we talking here? About 150 kilometers, mainly east and some south. Right, we're, right. we're already like 30 kilometers east. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're actually uh, recording out of Chestermere, so. Ah, yeah. We so, gave uh, away the location. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, the, the fascinating thing is that uh, various reasons given in the book, uh, we, we, we found a calendar there, a solar calendar, and uh, with astonishing accuracy, I mean, so that you can date it to 5,200 years, uh, plus or minus 200 years. I mean, the Stonehenge people, and where their age should maybe uh, 4,400 years, plus or minus 3,400. Yeah. But uh, it turns out that the, and most of the professionals, or maybe all the professionals, archaeologists and so-called archaeoastronomers, don't believe that uh, Stonehenge has much of a calendar in it, but it has the same accurate calendar as ours here, and ours is about eight hundred years, seven eight hundred years older than the Stonehenge one. Wow! And this this wasn't like an instant discovery, right? You guys spent years and years going back and forth in the summer yeah, and the winter. I mean, you guys were staying over in the snow, yeah. Yeah. yeah well. We've lived out there. If you add up all the separate days, it's uh, 
about 250 days. I mean, it's equivalent of about uh, eight months, a little more. <laughs> wow. All seasons, all seasons of the year. So yeah. we know some of those stones personally. Have you had any strange experiences out there in the dark? Well, strange is a pretty strange word, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, nothing is strange to me. But I don't know if it would be strange to somebody else. <laughs> Mother Nature is fascinating. I mean, when I get down on my knees to make notes in my field notebook, uh, cattle, if they're around, come up to wonder what I'm doing, and they come real close and they look at my book, and I don't know if they can read or not, but <laughs> and when I stand up, they move back. When you're taller than they are, they move away. When you're shorter than they are, they come right up. Yeah, and you also had some some experiences with some other what coyotes and some other animals, kind of keeping an <laughs> eye on you, right? Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> my wife can't hear a coyote if it's almost next door. She can hear a she can hear a bull uh, bellowing from kilometers away, but a coyote. Uh, it's got to be real close. <laughs> we described the one major incident with a coyote. We were down, oh, 30 meters down a steep uh, riverbank at a, at a um, backside for the equal day night sunset and taking measurements and photographs and so on. This is in the daytime, taking GPS and stuff. And we heard this coyote talking, talking to somebody two or three kilometers away and across the river, and they, the other ones were answering. So there's a conversation. So I looked up, and here, 30 meters above us and not too many meters horizontal was this enormous male coyote. <laughs> and so... Uh, it didn't know we were there, and so Phil moved away. She, she she was frightened by that thing, and um, so she moved, and then it sensed us, and so then it went away. Well, our truck was two kilometers away, so Phil decided she's going to leave me down there to do what I want. She was going to walk back, maybe at a brisk pace, to the truck where she'd be safe. Well... <laughs> she'd gone a couple of men, well, maybe five, and I heard this terrible scream. So I went scrambling up the bank and running. <laughs> the, the coyote tried to get friendly with her. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, I took her back to the truck. I mean, when she screamed, the poor coyote was scared out of his wits, and then he ran away. So when I got up, <laughs> there was no coyote evidence. So, so this and uh, bad incidents with bulls and things like that too. So there are a few things, but for a guy who was a farmhand in his youth, these <laughs> are just everyday experiences, I guess. So this this site that you're, that you're talking about that you guys discovered, I, I guess you realized it was bigger than you thought, like spread out over. A few different hillsides, like do. You... Well, we didn't know then because we were we went there on the advice of a guy who I was pestering too much, and he wanted to get us out of town for a few days. So he drew drew us a map of fifteen sites in southern and eastern Alberta uh. <laughs> where we should go, and and we'd be really interested in it. He said, <laughs> and uh, everything was fine. I mean, not 
much uh, some other so-called medicine wheels and big cans and things and glyphed rocks. Uh, what they had said about the other things seemed okay, but this one had all these associated patterns of stones that nobody recognized. And so we thought that uh, something, and anyway, uh, when we started to go there to look for more things, we kept finding things more and more. And then it just, it grew out over the years until it covers about, uh, well, more than 12 sections of land. Hmm. So I walked about, oh, at least 600 miles inside that 12 square miles. Wow. So, so, um, can you just describe a bit how you, you figure out, um, that this is a solar calendar? Like you obviously have to line it up with the backside or whatever, and, and you're watching for the sun, I guess the first flash and the last flash of the sun, for example. Yeah. Well, how it started was <laughs> ranchers, the ranchers call it the sundial. So the ranchers a hundred years ago, they must've had some kind of an inkling. <laughs> it, it looks like a sunburst, I guess. So they call it a sundial, not a medicine wheel. And <clears throat> when we went there, the ranchers, uh, had built a fence that actually cut across one edge of the of the ring with a cairn in the middle of it. <laughs> That's pretty uh, careless. But anyway, farmers built fences normally north, south, and east, west. So I thought that this uh, was probably a north-south fence. I mean, I didn't have a compass with me. So I thought it was a north-south fence. And these three... Oh, you call it an engineered set if you want. <laughs> Arrangements of rocks at right angles. <laughs> if the if the, if the fence had been north south, these rocks would have been in the summer solstice sunrise direction, the summer solstice sunset direction, and the winter solstice sunset direction. And I thought, holy smoke! <laughs> that that sounds like a calendar to me. That was the first year we were there. So anyway, next time we went back, we took a compass. And the compass showed the fence to be going northeast, southwest. <laughs> they built a fence following the river, and the river has got that direction at that point. So they were sort of dividing the rangeland so that the on one side, the... the uh, Cattle would go down to the river to drink, and the other side, they would find sloughs to drink. They had dammed up a couple of bricks, a couple of bricks. And uh, anyway, <clears throat> if this fence is northeast-southwest, those piles of rocks have got to be in the cardinal direction. Well, it's awful easy to find where the solstice uh, sun rises and sets because the moves until it stops at that place and then moves back the other direction again. Mm. So it's real easy to find a solstice direction. It's not easy to find north and south and east and west accurately. So we thought, gee, <laughs> if they've got the cardinal directions marked, which are harder than the solstices, they've probably got the solstices here too somewhere. We know where to look. And so I took a compass to find possible alignments for the 
well, first the summer solstice, because I didn't know how to get out there in the winter, riding set, and uh, well, the next year we found them. We started with, well, I mean, now we've got three dozen of these things, but we found the first one. So we knew we were on the way. Mm. And then after some time, <clears throat> after some years, we thought, well, if they've got both a winter and uh, summer solstices, Mark, uh, to get out there in the winter time is much tougher. But <laughs> you, uh, you obviously made an effort to document all of this in your book. Like you've got pictures and diagrams, and and it, you know, I get the feeling that you put all of your research into this book. No, no, that was a hobby. I, I've got 450 publications of chemical <laughs> physics. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean uh, about this thing, of course. <laughs> yeah, well, about this thing in that book, I'm writing now a six-volume. There's so much. Uh, there's more than ten times that much information in the six-volume archival report that I'm writing. Oh wow! I've got four and a half volumes. Written so far, first four volumes are in the Rare Books Collection at the University of Alberta and in the, the Glenbow uh, Museum Library in Calgary, mm -hmm. and uh, might wind up in the Canadian Museum of History Library if they want. Wow! So, and that's all all regarding uh, the same topic. So six volumes are all all of the the Majorville site. Wow! Wow! No Stonehenge in it at all. It's just the fascinating things. I mean, right now I'm making so many discoveries. I commissioned a, an aerial survey with a tremendous accuracy. They uh, photographed at 3,000 feet with a one-foot focal length lens. And so these 10-inch by 10-inch negatives, they're actual, the negative is the 1 to 3,000 scale. So my difficulty is to tell the difference between a cow pancake and a rock. <laughs> it is really, really good. And now I'm scanning those in Zoom, and I'm discovering stuff that I had no idea existed there. So the whole thing is getting out of hand. <laughs> so, so tell us about about the, uh, I guess the comparison to Stonehenge in the UK. You went uh, and spent a lot of time over there. Yeah, well, <laughs> when we heard about the discussion uh, of Stonehenge, whether it had a calendar or not, and all the the modern professionals, I mean, they've been talking about a possible calendar there for 300 years, and uh, uh, for the past 50, 60 years, all the professionals uh, decided, no, there's no calendar there. There's this accidental alignment with the summer solstice sunrise. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, they were looking at it wrong. If there were a calendar, nobody looked at it right because they're standing in the middle of this circle, this 30-meter diameter, 100-foot diameter circle, looking out between widely spaced rocks with three feet in between. They're standing 15 meters away from a one-meter-wide gap. And they say, oh, well, you know, if they, have got a, if they got a sunrise within two degrees, that's pretty good. <laughs> The people out at our, in Majorville, those lines are accurate to a 20th of a degree, some of them to a 30th of a degree. Huh. So if you say it, it's, uh, two degrees is good enough, that's 40 times too sloppy. And so all the early work was just sloppy. And it turns out that the people who publish all this stuff are hand wavers. <laughs> they take a 
few pictures and then they write a paper. And uh, since they're in England, they live there. And uh, who who believes anything that the colonial says? <laughs> we haven't made much progress over there. But uh, it turns out that it has exactly the same solar and exactly the same lunar calendar. But <clears throat> the, the real surprising thing is, do you know whether this is a leap year or not? 2015? It's not. It's not. What do you, it's leap year plus how many? Uh, next year's a leap year. Huh? 2016's a leap year. So this is a leap year plus how many? Plus three. Right. So anyway, you know that and hardly anybody else knows that. <laughs> so we recognize leap years and not leap years. Out here, they've marked every single year in the leap year cycle. They go back and forth, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. They go zip. And Stonehenge, they do the same thing. Hmm. And whether they emphasize the sunrise or the sunset on the equal day night, let you know whether the middle of their equal day nights is the winter solstice or the summer solstice. The calendar, the solar calendar at Majorville is focused on the winter. And Stonehenge, it's focused on the summer. Wow. It's exactly the opposite. So it makes me wonder, could they have done that? Would that likely have happened if there were no communications between the here and there? I mean, uh, <laughs> I like to think as individual separate development in the two places but it's getting harder and harder because well you they, they they emphasize the opposite things with the same calendar well you also discovered they were on the same 51 degree northern latitude as well yeah. right <clears throat> there's still 51 yeah and that that's because of that's magic because uh <laughs> the moon wobbles by nearly 20 degrees back and forth uh the sun is, is steady <laughs> as the earth goes around the sun, but the, the moon goes around the earth and the orbit's got a wobble in it. And uh, it's got a 18.6 year cycle. The earth wobbles a little bit too, but it's got a 26,000 year cycle. So we really don't notice that very much. It allows us to date the solstice lines out here, mind you, within 200 years. But, uh, the moon is a, is a different thing. Hmm. And I've forgotten where I was supposed to be going with that. No, just on the coincidence of the of the latitudes. and. Uh... Oh, yeah. Well, once in 18.6 years, the solstitial sunrise and moonrise, the full moonrise, where the full moon is opposite the sun, are differed by 90 degrees. The 90 degrees is a sacred angle because you've got to have something vertical to the Earth's surface if it's going to stand up for, for a long time, like thousands of years. The center of gravity has to be well over the points of support. So anyway, you can have a plumb bob over a surface of water, and that's a 90-degree that's angle. But for building going back many thousands of years, they've had to know what a right angle is because that's 
if you're going to build a vertical wall, it has to be right angles to stay up. Hmm. So the right angle between the rises and, and then the sets of the sun and full moon being 90 degrees, that's a magical thing, and that happens at 91 uh, degrees north latitude, and there's nobody living hardly at 51 degrees south. It would happen down there too, but it's mostly, mostly water down there, hardly anybody living. So do you figure um, that either these civilizations were interconnected five or 6,000 years ago, or do you think this is maybe a, a sacred site from before then that they were built on top of, or what's your best guess? Well, <clears throat> I don't like to speculate. I've, I've dated this one to 5,200 years, a completed calendar, how many centuries it took them to uh, get all that information, I don't know, but I imagine it's quite a few centuries because it would go, you know, build uh, over generations. Uh, there's always a young man. There's always a young nerd to tag along with an, an old nerd, so this stuff <laughs> is not that hard to, to pass along. But uh, in Stonehenge, uh, it's more foggy. The actual big stones were built, put up about, 43, 400 years ago, but the, the circle and ditch, the ditch and bank at Stonehenge, were roughly the same age as, uh, as here, maybe a little younger. Mm. <laughs> Excuse me, and there was a sun temple in Preseli Mountain in southwestern Wales that uh, Phil and I have discovered, <laughs> and that some Englishmen have been studying for a long time, that Dates about the same as ours here. Now, nobody has done the solar, the calendar measurements at uh, Priscilla Mountain, but I've recommended that in the book. Hmm. It might have the same kind of calendar right there, the same age as this one. Is there any place else uh, on the planet that you're aware of that kind of seems to have the same signature? Is there what? Any place else on the globe that has sort of the same signature as the the one in Alberta and the one in Europe? Well, I wouldn't... There are probably quite a few of them, but I don't know about them because uh, even Stonehenge hasn't been studied as thoroughly as the Majorville site in, in this aspect. Uh, there have been a thousand books written about Stonehenge, but most of them are repetitive. Right. And... Uh, Archaeologists, they dig things up. They destroy sites. And so there's a limited amount of digging gone on Stonehenge. There's a limited, much, much more limited set of digging that's gone out at our place. But Phil and I haven't dug anything. We've just used a tripod, camera, GPS, uh, measuring tape. <laughs> we haven't disturbed anything. And so I think archaeologists eventually will develop well, you, they will uh, adopt some of our techniques. Is there, is there any uh, photos available of Stonehenge that are as, as uh, accurate as the ones you've got of Majorville? No, just mine, just the ones you see in the book. Yeah. <laughs> hey, just, uh, all of the, well, all of the really crucial <clears throat> photographs, accurate photographs of Stonehenge are actually in the book. I mean, I've got 1,300 photographs of Stonehenge, but yes. a lot of them were uh, uh, like clouded over and, you know, 
failed attempts. Yeah, that's the problem up there. I mean, maybe the maybe the the climate was way nicer back then when they were actually building these. Oh yeah, well I think so because uh, six thousand years ago the prairies were so hot that hardly anybody lived here. There are not many artifacts on the on the plains from six thousand years ago, so people figured they moved to the mountains where it was cooler. Huh. And then they came back uh, roughly five thousand years ago. Hey, you mentioned uh, sections of land. What what is uh, like is twelve sections of land? Can you say that in acres? What is that in acres? I think a section is a square mile. Well, yeah, one square mile, and six hundred and forty acres is is uh, one section. Six um, six hundred and forty um, square acres is a section. Six hundred and forty acres is a is a section. Okay. So if you're into kilometers, it's roughly 30, a little more than 30 square kilometers. Okay. And I recommended that the government do something to protect uh, 25 or 30 sections of land. Uh, They might eventually do that. Wouldn't people understand that this is a sacred site, that there's there's no equal to it in the world? Well, you've already made progress on protecting it to a certain extent, right? A little bit, yeah. yeah. But I'm not supposed to talk about it. So. Oh, you're not? <laughs> no. <laughs> can I just, we can I head out there? We don't want to steal anybody's thunder. Oh, oh, I see. Oh, boy. We don't want to steal anybody. It takes government a long, long time to do anything. Yeah. And I'm really hopeful for this. So. <laughs> so for tax, I don't yeah. Wanna, yeah. Can is it open access? Like, could I head out there? Yeah, but you should always phone. Uh, I haven't got this number at home. You should the the, the uh, manager of the Lomond Grazing. Maybe you can find on the internet Lomond Grazing. Lomond is a village. You probably know about that. That's south of Asano by forty fifty miles. Okay, and they have a grazing. A uh, company that uh, leases, uh, I don't know, 50 sections of land down there from the government. That's uh, crown land for grazing cattle. And you should always get permission from the leaseholder before you go on the land. And so the man's name and his phone number, uh, I've got it in my big report. But I... I got a bad memory, so uh, that's okay. We can look it up. I don't know it now. Uh, we'll look it up. Maybe I'll head down there on Friday. Yeah, Loman yeah. Grazing. Yeah, and uh, just ask for the the lease manager. Okay. So who do you you attribute it to? To I mean, five six thousand years ago, we should be assuming that there's no one here except for natives. No what? No, but no, nobody living in Alberta other than uh, Native Americans. <clears throat> well, the 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 artifacts, like the, the what you can tell, what kind of people we don't know what kind of people we don't know what they look like because archaeologists they name artifacts after the nearest post office, like Oak Oxbow, uh, <laughs> the oldest projectile points in in the bottom of this cairn. Uh, are named Oxbow because they were first dated from charcoal and points found near Oxbow, Saskatchewan. I mean, Oxbow is a little hamlet in Saskatchewan, and they got named. So 
But anyway, <clears throat> there are 5,000 years spread of artifacts in that. Most of these, or 60% of them are now in the University of Calgary Archaeology Department. But there is no major change in style. There's a gradual drift. So there's no reason for me to believe that the people who built that looked any different from the Cree or the Blackfoot or the Sioux or the Lakota or anybody like that. I think Plains Indians were Plains Indians, and they moved around a lot. And when the white man came in on the East Coast, he chased a lot of the West. And so for the last 200 years, there's been rearrangement. I mean, Blackfoot used to... They, they, they possessed, if you want to call it that, uh, the hunting rights in, in the Edmonton area. But as the Cree got pushed west, uh, Blackfoot got pushed south. So now the dividing line is somewhere around Red Deer. What do you think about the way we name our roads? And like, because <clears throat> you've been sort of dealing with this for decades now, and and obviously how how the culture was destroyed. And I mean, some of it's left like like the area that you're researching here but what do you think about like we just had a ring road made here and we name it stony trail and then we have blackfoot and deerfoot is that is that like do you think that's like an insult or like an actual uh sort of uh i don't know how tribute to people, tribute to them i doubt if it's a white man making a tribute maybe the tributes will start coming in because of this uh uh, healing thing that, that came down today from Ottawa. Uh, I think that'll get put on the shelf like all the other ones, but maybe this one, maybe my books will help help to actually get people to do something uh, in, in reconciling with the Indians. Besides, besides naming stuff after them? Well, I don't know whether uh, Redskins was a hockey team or a baseball team or some kind of a sports team. I think that uh, that's offensive. Uh, whether Stony Trail is offensive, I don't know. You'd have to ask an Indian. But if he was offended in the least, it should be changed. What do you think, Darren? I'm not a uh, that kind of Indian, so... <laughs> If it was Ojibwe trail, then I might have a problem with that. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So I wanted to ask you before I forget too about, about Stonehenge, because since you were there and you were looking for these like back sites and you're probably exploring it similar to the way you explored the breadth of the Majorville uh, wheel or the Majorville site. Um, have you, wondered about or did you realize that there was more to stonehenge than there than uh, there was officially thought like recently like last fall they came out with that big uh, ground penetrating radar revealed stonehenge was much bigger than thought and you're probably all over that before were you yeah well i've been preaching that since uh <laughs> i've been preaching that for 30 years over there and finally they're doing something so that's a good thing and they never heard of me, so at least they pretend. So well, they pre yeah, they might have that. read your book. Yeah, but they don't acknowledge. I don't care about that. The thing is that they're getting the idea. And if these guys were st standing in the middle, looking 15 meters away <laughs> at a one-meter-wide gap, 
it was impossible. So I went over there knowing that if there were going to be any lines of any accuracy, you would have to stand outside the circle, look through the whole structure, find a crack in the right direction. It's a narrow crack, maybe, I don't know, a fifth of a degree wide or something, and that, that would have to be the alignment. So we went over looking for that. In fact, I had a an idea back in the 80s that uh, if there were a calendar there, there's got to be some kind of a foresight a kilometer away from the circle. Right. Well, I got permission to go, and I was going to go to a, a conference in the spring of 89 in North England. And so I corresponded that whole winter with people of English heritage, and I signed my life away and paid them a lot of money to get in when there's nobody else there except the guard. No tourists or anything. Early morning, late evening, you can go in. Uh, they call it special access. And I did that. And I was in there about three minutes before I found the winter solstice sunset foresight. It came 900 meters away, looking through cracks, looking still standing on the northeast side, looking through the cracks. There's the, the uh groin, if you want, of a mound and the, and the horizon. And uh, I thought, well, all the talk is about the summer solstice and the winter summer solstice sunrise and the winter solstice sunset uh, is the is the winter. Mm. And so I tried to get uh, a, one of the guardians who was a photographer also to do the, summer, the winter solstice sunset photography. Well, he tried two years in a row, and he was uh, fogged in both times, and so he wouldn't give me any more time. So I had to wait until I retired. It was forced retirement up here in, in my era in 1995, and nobody wants to retire, but um, at least I had December free. So my wife and I went over there in December 95, and sure enough, <laughs> There, there was the. I mean, the where the sun came down is exactly where it was on the diagram I had sent to the the guardian who was going to photograph it for me if he could see it. <laughs> it was astonishing. So anyway, we've been there. Oh, I don't know, fifteen or more times, uh, four days in in a row. It's what I have: morning and evening access, and. Uh, yeah, it was really good. The the guardians, they don't get paid all that much money. So they're, they're on that job because they love the place. The archaeologists, they get paid to make wise statements. So archaeologists fight as big now, but the guardians were really helpful. Hmm. And so yeah, that's that was lucky. I mean, so, I couldn't have done some of the stuff that I did if the guardians didn't help me sail very close to the wind. <laughs> That's interesting. So so I wonder, um, I wanted to talk to you about KNP, but I also want to keep going on, on Stonehenge for a while there. You you realized, uh, I, I learned something reading your book about the equinoxes. I've always thought that, that uh, it was, it was, uh, it was the same day in everywhere kind of like i guess i was misinformed about the equinoxes and then when i when i read your book i realized how how different depending on where you are the actual equal day equal night is 
Yeah, well, it's latitude dependent. And that <laughs> means, I mean, in the old days, when Christianity was God growing, uh, they dated Easter. Well, I mean, it was it was related to Passover, right? So, in fact, in every language but English and German, it's called Passover. But uh, and that's a spring thing, and because of the uncertainty of the so-called equinox, <laughs> there was trouble in uh, finding the date for Easter. And then in uh, oh, I don't know, fourteen. 70 or so, when the Portuguese started to uh, sail south of the equator. Sailors sail by the sun and the stars. (laughs) So they go by the stars. They live the sky. The sky is a living thing. And so they would know that uh, equal day night is latitude dependent. Well, when they were actually publicizing, when people were publicizing what these folks were finding when they're sailing to South Africa, uh, the date of Easter becomes a problem because Jesus only resurrected once, and so how can you have him uh, latitude-dependent when he resurrected? So uh, popes for a hundred years, I think about ten popes and their uh, advisory councils of bishops and cardinals, and they had Astronomers, they were trying to do it right. But for 100 years, uh, they wouldn't agree. I guess if the astronomers had their way, there would be some upset in the order of uh, religious festivals and so on. And Easter is the anchor time. Because the resurrection is what Christianity is all about. Hmm. So anyway, long comes this guy. And then when the, the, the Council of Trent was going on, they went on, I don't know, nearly 10 years, they were fighting and having, and telling what Christians should do, but they couldn't fix the calendar. So the Pope, I don't remember his name, heard of this hotshot lawyer in Bologna. Uh, one, I can't remember his name anyway, turned out to be... Uh, a good arguer, and so the Pope uh, made him a delegate to the Council of Trent. And then, uh, to give him more impact, uh, he appointed him a, a bishop. Hmm. And he didn't have to be a priest to be a bishop. A lawyer could be a bishop. So he was just appointed a bishop. Well, I guess he was still making good progress in his arguments, and so to increase his influence more, the Pope appointed him a cardinal. But you've got to be a priest to be a cardinal, so he just appointed him a cardinal priest. And so it went on. So anyway, a few years, five, six years later, when the Pope died, (laughs) this appointed cardinal priest was elected Pope Gregory the 13th. And he'd been in all these arguments, Council of Trent, trying to fix the calendar. Uh, So he just decided to legislate it. (laughs) I'm not going to explain to you. I'm just going to tell you. (laughs) And so on October the 5th, uh, October the 5th in 1582 will, will become October the 15th. So they just cut 10 days out of the out of the calendar. 
But it turns out that the actual calendar, which was the Julian one that had been going since Julius Caesar, who got it from Cleopatra when he was shagging Cleopatra, uh, he, uh, he, he slipped three days. He cheated by 10 days. It, it, the calendar was 13 days out of whack, and Gregory the 13th took 10 days out. Well, what did this do? It made the so-called equinox, equinoctium, the date when the sun was directly above the equator. Well, if the sun is directly above the equator, there's no more latitude dependence. And that would have been fine if he changed the name. It's not equinox. There is never an equally, an equinox on the equator. The day is always seven minutes longer than the, the night on the equator, year-round. So anyway, <laughs> what he did was keep the name Equinoctium. And there were no dictionaries back in 1582. Uh, no, not popular ones anyway, not widely accept, uh, available ones. So he defined equinox when, uh, as the, the day, two days of the year, when the length of the day and the night are equal everywhere on Earth. Mm. Why would he bother everywhere on Earth? Well, because Easter should be separated, should be, should be celebrated the same day everywhere on earth. It had to do with the dating of Easter every everywhere on earth. So if he had only called it uh, Sun Above the Equator, or some name I've given it in my book, um, that would have been fine. But he called it the Equinox, and so every European language defines equinox according to his Pope Gregory's definition. And it turns out that that definition is physically impossible. <laughs> and nobody, nobody tumbled to that until we couldn't find an equinox line out at the, out at the Majorville site. But we found accurate lines for sunrise and set three days before the spring equinox, three days after the fall equinox, that symmetry probably means something. So I go to the U.S. Naval Almanac Library, look up for the latitude and longitude of our major site, and by darn, <laughs> exactly three days before uh, in the spring and three days after, that's 12.0 hour day and night. So the true equal day night was discovered at the Majorville site. First wow. time in the world. First time in the world. Yeah, that's fascinating. Anyway. Oh, that's fascinating. <laughs> is that is that how and you stumbled across them being on the same latitude as well? No, no, no. Okay, they okay, you already went, knew that. Yeah, I already knew that from okay. from reading. Yeah, yeah. Huh. That's fascinating. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask you about about kinetics of non homogeneous processes as well because it's, it's non-homogeneous processes <laughs> non-homogeneous if you say homogeneous that's like saying kilometer i ask how, how many kilograms of potatoes do you did you buy kilogram. whoever buys a kilogram of potatoes so it's <laughs> kilogram and it's kilometer <laughs> and it's non-homogeneous <laughs> okay i stand corrected thank you for that 
<laughs> no, but but some of the most interesting guests we have on are, are into multidisciplinary studies. They're not just focused yeah. on one little thing, and that's kind of what I, f I found fascinating with with you too. Is you've gotten you got into all these different things, and oh, yeah. um, but I've never heard it described as uh, kinetics of non non homogeneous processes before. No, well, nobody had. So when I published a book <laughs> with that title in 1987, they had non-homogeneous. They had to make up a word for that in German and in Japanese. <laughs> Lots of languages. It turns out to be a, an, an unusual word, but it now exists in Japanese and Chinese and German and French. So you added words to some dictionaries. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So t tell us about that then. It, it, what is it like? The, is it uh, sort of structure out of chaos type thing, or is it? Uh, that, that's part of it. That's uh, that's not. Yeah, everything homogeneous means everything is equally distributed in space. Okay. Non-homogeneous means that somewhere there is a. Uh, it's not the same. So. Everything in nature is non-homogeneous <laughs> because there's random motions. Atoms are moving, molecules are moving, wind goes in gusts and that kind of stuff. So everything is nature, in nature is non-homogeneous. And it's a new way of, you can't use textbook chemical kinetics to explain this stuff. You can't teach this to second and third year kids. And so textbooks, well, you can't teach it to some professors either, but uh, <laughs> textbooks have got to take this an oversimplified view of things to be able to teach it. And so, in fact, the chemical kinetics that I taught for mm, 30 years and <laughs> university students was really a gross approximation. But in my radiation research, uh, the distribution of reactive species, and when you radiate something with gamma rays or high-energy electrons or something like that, the active species are produced along a particle track. That's really non-homogeneous. So I had to invent my own kind of mathematics to deal with that. And uh, it works like a charm, but... <laughs> Not too many people around the world have caught it up because uh, an American uh, working with a Dutchman uh, discovered a way that was mm, not bad. It wasn't as accurate as mine, but it was awful easy to use as an equation. I mean, there was no backing. There was no reason for the equation except it gave fairly good results, good enough. And so that's what nearly everybody uses. Mm -hmm. But non-homogeneous processes, um, once you start, it becomes a mindset. Once you start thinking about that, uh, everything is beautiful. Even agony is beautiful because it's non-homogeneous. You know, when you start to wonder about these things, uh, it's pattern recognition is, uh, is the strongest tool. I was just going to say that. Learning, in, in learning to understand complex systems, mm -hmm. whether it's uh, mm, 
things in society, you know, uh, whether it's uh, uh, why did white men build these residential schools and then steal children and put them in there. I mean, that's a very complex system. But if you look for patterns of how people have behaved toward defeated peoples throughout history, that's what they do. So it gives you a handle on it. <laughs> it shows how, well, a few of my graduate students have uh, become very wealthy people. <laughs> and one of my things in non-homogeneous processes is that if you haven't got a clean mind, if you're not ethical in everything you do, along your what you're doing in your research and you can't extrapolate it so to do a piece of research that will last for a hundred years you've got to have a clean mind so ethics is big in my in huh. my study preaching. Yeah. i got into a lot of trouble from presidents of universities for that but anyway <laughs> three of my very wealthy students former students have told me each of them that ethics and great success in business are not compatible. Wow. And you can apply that to uh, why people built uh, residential schools and did cultural genocide. Mm. And there were the Japanese did it, uh, <laughs> the Chinese did it, uh, the Spaniards did it, the Englishmen did it. The Nazis tried to do it. The Germans, World War Two. So he's saying it's a that's a global phenomenon, not just a, a North America kind of Western culture thing. It's a global thing, and it's it's global. It's, it's uh, <clears throat> wow, it's part of human nature. A human is a very ugly animal if you don't train it to be decent. That's why kids uh, who are not getting the parental attention that they need are killing other kids and so on. I mean, every one of the teenage murderers, you go back, they started off in England and then Columbine in the United States brought it to to uh, everybody's consciousness. I've been following it for a long time. Uh, the one in Tabor, every one of those murdering teenagers did had had insufficient parental guidance. Hmm. So it's all pattern recognition. And uh, this is why I'm really hopeful that uh, people won't go to sleep on what happened today in the Parliament. Today? As in today? Today, yeah, with uh, the, the, the healing and whatever they call it, reconciliation report. They had a a uh, Métis judge, uh, I'm very bad at names, but anyway, he for six years he's been gathering information from residential school survivors. Oh, okay. And he uh, released a report, the government released it today with 90-some recommendations. Well, such a large number of recommendations, you know where the government is going to put that. But maybe uh, things like my book will help us enter the white consciousness yeah. and uh, make things less bad. Definitely. So how did you, when you started this research and you realized that you're 
kind of be going against the mainstream. Was that a concern to you or like, how did you, uh, I always like to, I'm always fascinated by people like yourself who completely go against the stream and how, how, how that battle goes. Like most of you seem to just not really give a shit and, and you just sort of do what you know is sort of right. And you don't really care about the blowback. We're loners. <laughs> You've got to be a loner. If you cared what anybody else thought, <laughs> you wouldn't, you wouldn't do any of this stuff. So if you're a loner by nature, and I happen to look into the most magnificent woman I've ever seen uh, who married me. But I mean, uh, I was 19. Maybe I'm in pattern recognition for all my life. I don't know where it starts. But when I was 19, I was a summer student. I was at the University of Saskatchewan for five years. And uh, anyway, uh, I applied for a summer job. Uh, the experimental, I was a farmhand as a kid, right? So yeah. uh, the experimental farm in Swift Current. And the uh, farm came back from the government. Uh, if you uh, were offered a job someplace else, would you take it? I said, sure. <laughs> I said, do you know how to run a outboard motor? I had never seen an outboard motor, but I had taken apart tractor engines. And so I said, sure. <laughs> I thought I could learn an outboard motor in a couple of minutes. <laughs> and I was offered a job at experimental farm in Ottawa. Well, fine. <laughs> so when I went down in May of 1950, the water was just right up to the ties under the bridge going across the Red River in Winnipeg. That was the big flood. And uh, anyway, I met a girl. The hardest thing I've done in my life was to come back to Saskatoon and leave her behind in Ottawa. Huh. And so going down there the next summer, they put me in a different lab, more research this time. <laughs> but halfway through, I, I just decided I'm not going to do that again. I mean, that's a hard, I have never done anything like that. And that really told me, I wrote to her every single day. There's seven days in a week, and there's only mail delivery <laughs> six days a week in those days. <laughs> so some days she'd get two letters, and I guess her father commented on this. What kind of a guy is <laughs> he write the two, two letters in a day? Anyhow, halfway through the, <laughs> halfway through the, the next summer, it, it was a, sort of like a five-month thing in those days. Universities for farm farm communities with a seven-year thing, seven-month thing. So I told her, if you don't marry me, come back to Saskatoon, I'm going to quit university. <laughs> I was 20. <laughs> if you're not 21, you got to get permission from your parents to get married. And I knew damn well my mother would have a fit. I would never get. But my birthday is on 27th of August. So I thought, fine. This university doesn't start till the 15th of November, so to the 15th of September. So we, we'll just wait, and then we'll just send a letter. Uh, we're going to get married on the 8th of September, 1950, and uh, please come. <laughs> and that's what we did. And I just, I don't know how, but I just lucked into the most fantastic woman <laughs> that I ever met. And so she's been with me on all this stuff. And she knew about family thing and the needs of children. So I published things, and I've got into trouble for that, too, <laughs> about <laughs> K&P and society. 
<laughs> but it took me 10 years to know to to learn what my wife knew by her nature it's just astonishing and anyway well that sounds like a study of kmp too right for for her it is kmp it yeah. is KMP. pattern recognition but where it comes from i don't i don't know but you if if you care what anybody else thinks I mean, I obviously didn't care what my parents think. So <laughs> this beautiful lady that I'm, not, I'm quitting university unless you marry me. Uh, I didn't care what my parents thought. I was just going to quit. That's it. And uh, she did, fortunately. And all this has happened is since. But uh, huh. this thing about understanding families, uh, she was my... I can't say she was my teacher. By talking to thousands of students, I mean, I had a patient here, and so students, even who weren't in my courses, would come when they had a problem. I can't say and just, and just, uh, and uh, we've got an interference there. And yeah. they would tell me their problems, and I would never advise them. I would just ask them questions until they solved their own problem. And, uh, but then when I would go and talk it over with my wife, she she knew that already. She, anyway, must be something about those Saskatoon. Uh, Saskatoon huh? must be something about those Saskatoon women. I've I've got a long distance relationship with this woman from Saskatoon <laughs> myself. Yeah, so well, I kind of know how you feel. It's a great place. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that's funny. So one one question about ley lines because that that always seems to come up with these ancient sites. Did you, I noticed you mentioned in your book about the water, like they're both close to, uh, to rivers. Um, did you notice any similarities, uh, with this, this one here in Alberta with ley lines at all, or some sort of underground aquifers? There's usually water to the east of these sacred places. Um, I've had a lot of people communicate with me about ley lines. But that's a diversion. I mean, you really have to specialize or you just get spread so thin that you don't have any impact. And so I have uh, a casual interest in the ley lines. I don't believe or disbelieve their power. And if people believe in them, that's fine with me. I just don't want to get involved in the discussion because it would be a distraction. I've got more to do in analyzing photographs and writing about the, the Majorville site than I'll have years left to to work on. So yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Ley lines. Yeah, I mean, it, when the book when the first book came out, I had a, a lot of people corresponding about ley lines, but it because I didn't really participate, uh, it, it fell off. But I still occasionally get letters about ley lines yeah yeah so there must be something there and dowsing yeah yeah uh but uh i don't know mm. i used to be able to douse <laughs> when i was uh 17 16 there was a guy a bachelor dear salvador saskatchewan <laughs> If somebody couldn't find a well on their farm or in the, even in the village in their yard, he'd bring him in and he'd walk with a steel crowbar and tell him where to drill. 
And whether they had to drill 20 feet or 35 feet, there was, he never had a dry hole. Wow. So he, he, I asked him, he showed me how to do it. He says, well, we can't show you. I either can do it or not anyway. So he took me to some place and had me blindfolded and all these kind of testing things. And it turned out I could doubt. Hmm. I could wish for water. And when I went to, well, before I went to university, I had a ruptured appendix. And uh, at springtime, Saskatchewan, the gravel highways washed out, the railways washed out, and his kids got appendicitis 30 miles from a, from an unavailable hospital. So anyway, I was there three days, and the thing was ruptured too for two days before I finally before they restored the rail line. And when I recovered from all that, about a year later, I tried to witch for water, and it wouldn't work. So That's my mind is completely open about witching for water. I know it works for some people, and it used to work for me, but whatever happened with nearly kicking the bucket with all that peritonitis and so on uh, didn't work anymore. So I like that water witch. I'm going to call. I'm, we, know, we know a dozer. You know about that? No, yeah. we, we know somebody who does it. Yeah. Are you talking about John Ward? Or? Yeah. 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 I've, been, I've, I've never talked to him about that. I've watched his YouTube video. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Huh. What? How, how it could work, I don't know. But Only with an appendix. 99.999% of the, uh, what's available, I don't know. So <laughs> that's just another thing that I don't know. <laughs> I accept it, but I don't understand it. That's a healthy attitude to have. We we actually try and have that attitude here. Lots of lots of I don't knows and lots of uh, open minded acceptance. Oh yeah. So, uh, do you, is there anything else that you think that uh, you want to mention to people before we start wrapping it up? Oh no, no, no! What else can you ask? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think we've I think we've pretty much covered it all. I mean, we're going to link to. Uh, link to your book here you know on the show notes and well this thing will yeah. will come out and, and go around the world in a couple of weeks so yeah well, that's good and now just just realize that every race has got its genius genii created that site down there between five and six thousand years ago it must have taken centuries to develop it yeah the there's genius still amongst the Indian people. They like to be called Indians, not First Nations and all this kind of stuff. It's like one of the elders said, you people came here and you called us Indians and those animals buffalo. Now you want to change the names. <laughs> I don't want to change the names. So I call them Indians. I call them buffalo. So Indians contain as much they possess as much genius as the asians the europeans the africans whatever this is something i hope people will absorb yeah that's that's well said i like indian too <laughs> right on well thanks a lot for coming on gordon well, you're welcome. Yeah. Good luck with it. Yeah, it was a great chat, and thanks for all your dedicated research, and uh, good to have you guys 
you you guys you probably would call yourself a nerd a curious nerd and it's good that we have you guys around nerds are everywhere forever <laughs> right on <laughs> okay thanks a lot Gordon okay bye okay, bye 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 Welcome back to the show. What'd you think, Darren? That was a good one. Did you have a good time with that? Yeah, one? that was a good one. Yeah. I want I need to go check it out. Check out what? Our local Stonehenge? Our local Stonehenge, oh. yeah. The dedicated research. The decades of research this guy put in, man. You should see the pictures in his book. The snow. The book is fucking amazing. Did it, oh, you've been browsing it, eh? Yeah. You could just sit yeah. through it and fucking sift through the pictures for days. It's yeah. like high quality. Yeah, it's very good. And it's kind of theme is similar to the rest. A lot of our other shows, guys like Robert shock and these guys that have put forth theories that kind of buck the mainstream and they've been just battling. They don't really care what people think and they just battle, battle away a good fight. Yeah. Now I'm going to try and get out there for sure. Maybe I'll do that in the Okotoks erratic in one day. And that night I'll make a crop circle. But you got to plan on traveling off road, like basically 18 clicks or something like that. Like it's a off long road. ways. Yeah. It's like, it's like off the, I don't think you can just drive up a dirt road to it. Like it's out there. That one listener that suggested we had Gordon on, um, from hardwood floors. He, he, uh, he said he tried to find it once he couldn't find it. He went out really? there looking. So we should get in contact with him and maybe go out, go out on a little hunt for it. Yeah. Yeah. We I can record it. We'll, we'll record a podcast. I got the digital, uh, Digital, digital thing, Majig, and we yeah. can have the microphones and just drive and do it while we're there. Yeah, we'll go for a sunset. Maybe go for June twenty first. That's in like, oh, that's Father's Day. It, what is it? Yeah, but that's the uh, could be solstice. Could be tough. Sunset. Oh, come on! Everybody's in bed. The sun sets at like ten o'clock that night. 
So it's still pretty late to drive down and hike 18 kilometers. You don't have to hike. You can drive. It's just off-road. Like We can take uh, your car. My car <laughs> off-road. We'll, we'll take the bike. You can ride on the back. That's not a bad idea. That's a terrible idea. <laughs> anyway, we'll see. Not on the solstice, but we could still get out there at some point. <laughs> Maybe. Well, we're not doing it in the winter, so it's, you know... The summer. We can never. just fucking go there. We'll go there and skywatch at the same time. Sure. Okay. Aren't you always skywatching? I try. Fucking ground skywatcher. I try. Perfect. Yeah, but we'd like to thank Gordon for coming on the show. I don't think you'll find him anywhere on any social media, but uh, you can definitely pick up the book. And uh, yeah, you can support the show as always. Help us. Uh, Pay the bills, redamerica.ca slash support. Buck a show is all we ask. Oh, yeah. Can you, uh, we didn't say this in the intro, but Spam Graham, I'd like to hear your interesting, we like to interact with the listeners, right? And make it sort of, uh, and a lot of people seem to enjoy that. And we're not just talking about news stories and shit like that. So send in your experiences, whether that's your trip report, UFO sightings, synchronicities, lucid dreams, precognitive shit. Absolutely. And I will rate that shit. Uh, speaking of which, yeah, speaking of support, uh, I think next show we'll put together a list of our supporters and uh, rifle that off. You know who you are. Thanks for supporting. Yeah. Uh, thanks for tuning in, guys. And we'll see you next week. The landlords put the fences up a long time ago. They robbed us all. As everybody knows But some things can't be controlled Don't mess with the standing stones Stonehenge is alive and strong It's no ancient ruin Don't mess with the standing stones You don't know what you're doing Stonehenge is alive and strong It's no ancient ruin Don't mess with the standing stones You don't know what you're doing Out of your concrete cities out of your concrete minds, out of your control, a festival unwinds. Some things can't be controlled, don't mess with the standing stones. In summer 1985, we came to keep Stonehenge alive. Sticks and stones can break our homes, but you don't know what you're doing. In summer 1985, we came to keep Stonehenge alive. Sticks and stones can break our homes, you don't know what you're doing. Where do you go in the summertime when the air is sweet and the sun is high? Where's the holiday you can take if you're on the dole, not on the make? And we all know, and they all know, we never messed with the standing stones. Stonehenge is free, it won't be owned, it's no dying ruin. English heritage, go to hell, you don't know what you're doing. Stonehenge is free, it won't be owned, it's no dying ruin. English heritage, go to hell, you don't know what you're doing. They went too far, what fools the landed gentry are Stuff your razor wire down your throat Wash it down with a five pound note Stonehenge won't be controlled Don't mess with the standing stones The police smashed, the police break The police made a big mistake 
power is ours for us to take And we know what we're doing The police smash, the police break The police made a big mistake The power is ours for us to take And we know what we're doing The police smash, the police break The police made a big mistake The power is ours for us to take We know what we're doing Police smash, police break Police made a big mistake Power is ours for us to take We know what we're doing Police smash, police 